Yes, hello folks, welcome to the weekly Batch of Data podcast. I'm your host as always, Phil Brown, joined with my regular co-host, the excellent James Rhodes here. Of course, first one of 2024. Last time we recorded, my friend, was December 18th, and so much has happened since then. Um, I've been kicked out of the house with two arrests. Well, that's not, uh, anyway, so um, how was your Christmas and New Year's? It was pretty good. It was a, it was It was nice, obviously. For both of us, a lot of family time, a lot of time with kids, things like that. So uh, making the podcast a little difficult, but it was a really good time. It was a it was a good time, good good uh, good reset. And then, you know, we obviously, I think, when we recorded on the 18th, we said maybe the uh, this Ineos deal be wrapped under the Christmas tree mm-hmm. and and Christmas Eve. It was nice to finally get that confirmation announcement and everything that came with that. And over the next few days. Uh, that was uh, something to break up the, the holidays and read all about and start digging into. What do you think they announced on Christmas Eve? I think that it's it's an interesting thing because I think that this is, again, a type of thing. As soon as it was ready, they have to announce it. They can't really sit on it. I think they did want to announce it as soon as possible. I think that they were really concerned about it going into the – Christmas period and New Year without getting done. Um, there's a lot of, as we dive into the agreement itself, there's a lot of, I mean, this was incredibly complicated. Mm-hmm. It was really difficult even to get done in the state that it got done was, um, I think part of it required them just pushing it to a vote, even with some people not present, according to some articles and things like that. So I think that was part of it. It was just, I think, you know, Jim and, and the Glazers probably just said, let's just get this done now. we we got to get this over with because this could go on interminably with some of the challenges that they faced if they didn't just push it through at some point in time. Inevitably, when you look at the uh, SEC disclosure, and there's a lot in there that's uh, way yep. over my head, but some of the things that people were looking for, James, was is there a, a, a pathway to ownership enshrined in writing? Now, I'm not 100% sure if I'm on sound footing on this, but from what I can understand is that you, it wasn't legal to put that in writing where you're still a publicly traded company because it removes right. risk from the stock going up and down and and, and yeah. um, um, there's legal complications about that, about enshrining that in writing. Yeah, I mean, as far as I could tell from talking to some people who were some of the people who actually kind of broke the stories some around the financial times and things like that, just chatting with them, you know, uh, essentially that's what it looked like was just that, you know, um, they couldn't do it in the end. It was just, it didn't make sense uh, for them to be able to, to put that kind of agreement in place when it comes to the minority shareholders and all of that, you know, Generally speaking, it's hard to justify legally giving someone a guaranteed right to buy something in the future because as a minority shareholder, what if a better offer comes? You know, this is part of the issue that goes into all of it. You have to even think about what if, you know, you give Jim an option for 35 a a share at, you know, this date and someone comes in with 40. Well, what happens to that option? How does that work? How does this, you know, th- th- it's so complicated and even having that price in the future affects things like, um, 
you know, fix things like the share price, all of it. It's just really, really complex is essentially what it was. And, and the holdup continued to be these minority shareholder concerns, basically, to the point where, as I believe it, they had to essentially strip out any sort of guaranteed option in the future just to get this deal legally over the line. And and obviously, we wish that wasn't the case, but um, it, because it, it seems like it was. That if Radcliffe is successful, it's going to be harder to get them out. Because it would seem to me that in that situation, United would also be commercially successful, obviously. And the price of getting them out will go up. Uh, they're going to be mm-hmm. more reluctant sellers if United are performing well commercially. And so, you know, for them, if it feels, you know, they're getting paid anyway, it seems to me that um, from a Jim Ratcliffe perspective, I'm a bit skeptical. I mean, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic about the whole thing, but I'm a bit skeptical that, you know, his success will lead to their removal. Well, yeah, it, it is tricky. It, it's hard to, um, it's hard because there's no guarantees, obviously. There's no guarantees in all this. That being said, you know, there's a couple of, of important things that are, are in this agreement that I think are worth evaluating. You know, The Athletic did, an art, did a review of everything, one of their guys, recently. And his takeaway was kind of the same as mine, which is, yes, there's nothing guaranteed in there. But there is a lot of framework for a deal. There's a lot of framework for a deal that would allow for and encourage essentially, you know, Jim Ratcliffe or somebody else to buy the club over the next 12 to 24 months. There's a lot, a lot of incentive to do that. And and there's a lot of there's a lot of things in place that would allow that to happen. And that's kind of my conclusion uh, from it as well, is that, you know, it's the Glazer. So, you know, what are you going to do? Say about it. But I think the couple things that are telling are this. They were amenable to an option and, in fact, even had agreed to put an option in there. They had already agreed to a sale to Jim Ratcliffe of a majority stake back in May that they could not overcome the legal challenges on, that they brought to a vote that they all voted yes on. Um, those are matters of, of truth. And so I think when you look at the Glazers in general, you know, they're not quite these like cartoon villain-esque people, they're simply sort of your ultra capitalist individuals who have an ownership of, of a club that they don't particularly care about in a sense that they should or in a way that they should and want to maximize on their return on it. However, you also have to factor in what does that really mean? I mean, one could hold on to it for 20 years and probably it'll be worth 15 billion in the future with inflation, with the rise in football and all that, maybe. But do they need to do that for 20 more years when Abram Glazer will be in his almost in his 90s by then? That doesn't particularly make sense if he's still around. Um, you know, those are considerations that come into play with all of this. And I think that it's well set up for this deal to be kind of duplicated in a sense that would allow the Glazers to cash in maybe a little more, you know, $33 a share today, $35 in a year from now, you know, um, to, to, uh, to cash in. And the only thing that I would add to that is when you look at the overall valuation that this has given, and especially given that they also diluted a little bit, 
with Jim Ratcliffe's investment of 200 million plus 100 by the end of of this year, which I'm sure we'll talk about, their valuation that Jim Ratcliffe is offering them is about a billion more than the only other offer on the table. So who else is going to be there that they sell it to? Um, that's going to offer more. There is no guarantee that there's anybody else who's going to come close to offering the type of money that Jim Ratcliffe is offering for this club, for the Glazers. And I think that is a, a consideration in all of this. And I think he he certainly overpaid when when you compare it to the fact that there's nobody else even close to to making an offer of that level because he wants the club, and uh, and that's the good part, I guess. You know, uh, the, one of the questions that I have is how do they marry two different ideologies, make them functional, uh, make them mm. symmetrical, and and make them an adjuvant of each other so that United perform on the pitch. Everything inside the football club, in my opinion, should be the first principle of getting the best football team possible on the pitch and define ourselves by winning trophies, which is what our competition does. That United haven't had that. Um, all of a sudden... You're asking this football club to find um, a happy medium between these two very different ideologies that stand in opposition to each other. It, because I think <clears throat> if you look at how the Glazers have run the football club over the last 10 years, everything has been derivative of their uh, first priority, which is making sure they're commercially successful. That is the most mm-hmm. important thing. And if you look at teams that, um, try to finish in the top four and have that as a goal. Here's one of the problems with that goal, in my opinion. You are immediately telling players that losing games is acceptable. Right. Not terminal to the goal. Okay. And once you put that mentality inside a football club that says, it's okay if we lose this week because we can recover next week, you're going to miss the targets occasionally. So, you know, you see this with Spurs and other teams that will have one decent season and a really bad season. One decent season and a really bad season. When they have a good season, they just try to maintain. They don't try to progress. And inevitably, they miss the target occasionally. Now you're going to try to get people in there that's going to say, okay, the only acceptable metric of success for us is winning trophies. If you look at City, City have sacked um, Pellegrini and uh, Mancini over the last 10 years, both for winning a league, neither of which was enough keep their job um we've talked about this in this podcast before any native manager in the last 10 years who would have finished in the top four would they'd still be there right so how all of a sudden do you now get a football club that says everything inside here and i know that um you know jim ratcliffe and the any of us who don't by the way it needs to be said have a perfect record in sports mm-hmm. right I mean, I was looking at some of the sky cycling stuff with the Brailsford and what have you, and it's not, it's not, it's not glaring. Maybe like that. Um, even um, the Americas, the, the, their yachting team, and there's, there's, they're not exactly, they're, they're definitely better than what we have, but they're far from perfect. But to become Premier League champions, the whole football club has to change culturally everywhere. And that means every single department inside that football club has to have a very clearly defined um, success metric. And every resource inside the club has to be poured towards sport and success. And I don't know how you do that with owners that are the majority owners that still don't share that goal. 
Yeah, it, it is tricky. I mean, some of it is a bit of a of an ideological view of what it takes to win that I guess we're going to find out a bit about. Uh, because United, with the sporting control very clearly and legally defined when it comes to Ineos, having complete control over really everything. I mean, at the end of the day, football is about personnel, coaches, staff, players, and what they do and who they are and, and whether you get the right people in or not. Um, and I guess when you look at it, you say, if that is segmented the way that it's supposed to be, and if United should have essentially the largest budget possible, which they should comparatively, they should have a, a budget that, I mean, look, it's not like they haven't spent money. They've spent the most on transfers and the most on wages. So we know that that's probably going to continue under this, in this circumstances, or it can continue uh, under this, the same kind of setup. If that continues and they have equivalent of the most money in the Premier League or up there, they should be able to do effectively the same thing that anybody would want. I mean, can it just uh, for a second? One of the reasons why United spend the money that they do is a reflection of their ineptitude, and also for me, a reflection of the fact that they don't invest in other resources inside the football club to prevent. So to prevent that type of overspending, what you would do is you would have a director of football with actionable responsibilities yep. and say, yep. okay, we're going, instead of spending a hundred million this summer, we're going to give you 20 million for your department so that you have, because if you're in, you if you're a director of football and you want to be competitive in the youth market, that is a whole market in itself. You can't mm-hmm. think, have somebody grow into that job, right? That is every every football club around the world wants the the next Lionel Messi at sixteen. Yep. So it's really, really, really competitive, and it's something you have to do every single day. You have to have incredible contacts. You have to have very actionable responsibilities. You have to be funded properly. You have to go and get the best people, and then you can avoid spending a hundred million, eighty-five million on Anthony because you have proper scouting, proper contingency, proper stocked academy all that stuff, and you have, you know, United are looking at this kid in Ecuador, we'll get into that, it is Ambrano, but for years, you know, United haven't funded those departments properly, so they haven't yep. functioned properly, and then you see that consequence at the top end, so now you would have to say, in order to avoid that, you're going to have to hire exceptional people, but also make sure these departments are funded with very, very, very clear, precise goals. This is what's going to get you sacked, this is what's going to mean your success. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's the things that the the thing about it is, you know, you tweeted something to this effect, and it's the truth. This is what my view on the Glazers has always been. That's why I say I don't see them in this villainous sense in the same way. I see them simply people who want a lot of money and they make the wrong decisions. And for the football club, they make the wrong decisions for the success. What Ineos have to do is what the Glazers could have done this whole time. They could have said... Let's get a CEO whose focus is football. And that's what they're going to focus on, the football success. And let's give them the power to do everything that they need to do. Because that's how you run any business, any department. You have to delegate responsibility and powers to the people who are in the job. 
on the job. And there has to be clear focuses on what is success, what is failure, what are the goals, what are we trying to accomplish? Well, we know the goal for Manchester United. It has to be to be the top team in Europe. It has to be. That has to be the goal. Anything less than that is unacceptable. That's where they have to aim. So we can set that clear target. But yeah, Ineos have to do the same thing that the Glazers could have done in order to be successful with this. I don't want to see them involved in every single decision. That's not the point. They shouldn't be because they're not necessarily the experts. Dave Browsford is a very smart guy. He's not the football expert. And they made a lot of mistakes uh, with Nice for a few years being too involved in a, in a sense. And you can have good intentions and make the same mistakes and not setting up the best people to make the best decisions, to do the best things with a clear guide to what is success and what is failure. And so they that is absolutely what they have to do. And that's why I think it can work with the control. They have to delegate it properly also. They have to be the ones to say, good, we've got a CEO. We've got these directors in. We're going to give them their money. We're going to give them their budget that they have. And they've got to pull it off. They have to accomplish what they have to accomplish. And we have to have, you know, consequence for failure. And we have to set clear and, and, you know, exceptional targets. And obviously, they're probably used to doing this in general business. You have to translate it to football. But the same concept applies. The same thing applies that it would to, you know, what makes their businesses successful so long as they understand that they're not the people who know football better than anybody else. And I, and I think they do. I think hopefully they've learned from some of the things at Nice. They've set things up really well now where they've taken a step back from overly interfering in how the club is run and given a real director of football uh, responsibility and power who's done a lot with it. A real coach, they've set a, a clear direction. They've got to do the same thing for United and there might be bumps along the way. But the success of it, I think, has less to do with now the Glazers and more to do with if they properly set this structure up and give it the power and the resources that it needs. And if they do that, then we have as good a chance as anyone to win, as good a chance as Liverpool to win, as good a chance as Arsenal, you know, as good a chance as anybody to to make it happen. And and that's what I'm optimistic about from everything that I've that I've heard, at least uh, from the start on this. But that's what's going to be the the proof of of, uh, of whether this is a successful venture or not. You can already see the Ineos effect um, with how United have gone about their January transfer window, which has largely been um, l- l- largely been a-, a window so far where they're clearing out players that um, yeah. should have been moved on. Let's be honest, years ago, Danny Van der Beek. Um, I think United tried to move him on December thirty first. I think it was what is it? It's the first in Sydney. Can he go yet? I don't know. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> We changed our clocks to New Zealand yeah, time. Well, we yeah, send it on our way. Three years day in Sydney. The window must be open. Get him out there. No, yeah. really, really. Um, I, I think about Van der Beek a lot, and I think about a player. Was there ever a player United where he was so forgiven for so long, where I kept thinking he'll come good, he'll come good? You know, and Ten Hag came in and thought if it doesn't work for him now, it never will. But then, then I sat and thought about it the other day. I'm like, can I remember a single good game that he had for United? I can't. Yeah. I can't. I can barely remember a game he actually well, like, played. <laughs> it was obviously someone that Solskjaer didn't want. Um, yeah. I think COVID had something to do with his signing. Um, I think uh, 
you know, the fact that Villa stayed up that year, you needed what probably went the Grealish and uh, I was hearing someone talk about this the other day. It might have been Laurie Whitwell, actually, who's exceptional, by the way. Um, and um, so I think that uh, you know he was refreshing my memory and some of that stuff with with Van der Beek, and it was pretty obvious from the outset that Solskjaer never really wanted him. Um, it just didn't work. I wish him all the best. I hope it works out for him. Um, Palestri, United were going to move on in the summer, ended up not because of the injury to Ahmad. Um, I was on a podcast right before Christmas and I said, I don't think Palestri will ever be good enough for Manchester United. I, I just, I don't see enough I've, of all the times I've seen him, and I'm going to go back to Van der Beek. Been some decent moments from Palestri, and I know not everyone agrees with me on this, but I can't remember a game where I've really thought, wow, this kid, you know, really is good enough United. I'm excited about what I see here. So I think it's appropriate that they move him on. The big one is obviously Jaden Sancho, whom we'll talk about Rafael Varane and a couple of others in a minute. But um Jaden Sancho, it's a no lose deal for United. Um one he goes back mm-hmm. to a place where he will have happy memories from psychologically. It'll reinvigorate him because he'd want to go back to a place where he was at peak performance. He knows the league. He'll be confident he can go in there and hit the ground running. It's it's not another risk to another Premier League club where you're not sure if it's going to work out. If Jaden Sancho has any chance of getting back to the player that he was before he came to Manchester United, this is the right move for him. If he can perform well for the next four to five months, um, I still think United will look to sell him. Because ultimately, the rule that he broke has nothing to do with Ten Hag. That has to be a club rule because... You can't be conditional upon the manager as to whether you have tolerance for what time you show up to train or not. You know, yeah. George Best wasn't allowed to do this. You know, eventually that got him kicked out. You know, um, uh, if you just if you go to a Beckham documentary when he was made to train on his own by by um, uh, Capello, Capello ended up bringing him back into the squad because of how well he was training on his own. Right. So to me, I think. Uh, the rule of Jaden Sancho broke. There can never be a time he needed when it's okay to break that rule. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, there's there's two there's two different real aspects to this whole thing. There's there's one that there, you know, I think that the whole situation was uh I, I don't think anybody from the outside would be happy with it because the way that it ended up was the worst possible outcome from a club perspective. When you look at it from top end management, you cannot have an asset who is essentially worthless you just can't you, you got to avoid it at all costs not to take blame away from the player because what being late the, the issues that he's had those are totally on him but at the end of the day you still don't want to have a no you know you still don't want to have a, a worthless essentially from a value perspective i'm talking asset that you can't do anything with that's taking huge wages and it was really dealt with poorly in that respect and I think that that would be one area where proper leadership would have stepped in to resolve it differently in the end. Not yeah, saying I've, the players going to have to play for the manager or anything like that. Like, it's not like you've got to play and you've got to start him. I'm not talking that. But there is a difference in how it could be resolved where his value doesn't go to absolutely nothing. And and hopefully, this loan is the start of fixing that from a management perspective. Then, as you said, yeah, I see it as a totally a win-win situation. If he performs well, which I think he will at Dortmund, right? If he goes back to Dortmund, he goes back to Germany, and he performs well, either you can sell him to somebody um, and get a return, 
or you think he's fixed up, we've resolved the situation, can he return as a Premier League player? Maybe. Either one. I'm not saying which which nobody knows what the future will hold in that respect, but it gives a lot of flexibility for the options there uh, for the future and, and what could happen you know, down the line. It, it's It'll be interesting to see, I guess, from an Ineos perspective, uh, and I'm not just I'm not talking about like player mistakes and things, but I'd be interested to see if there's any sort of moratorium essentially that they give on some of these players because there's a lot of players who feel that there's been broken promises over the years I with United. Personally, I wouldn't. No, no, I understand, but there it's, is there is. Times, I'm sorry, like I mean, these are players that, in my opinion, need to ask themselves one no. question: not whether you want to play for the manager. Do you have the trust of the fans? Yeah. And, and these players have done this so many times. How many times are we going to keep giving them? Wait, yeah, it's not you. It's the yeah. manager. I know it was the manager before that. No, no, no. It was the manager before that. That would apply. That would apply, that would apply to different. Yeah. That would apply to everybody. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's so it's that's, more yeah, a matter of... I mean. Yeah. It would have to... At the end of the day, though, the signs that I gather from the clearouts from the players they're looking to sell... I don't really see it that way. I see that their focus is on football, uh, on the matter of who's going to perform the best and where are you getting the best value for money in the squad. They're looking at obviously moving on Casemiro. We've already it's already been commented on that that was one of the transfers brought up, you know, by uh, in the back in March last year when they first visited and all of that. That it was a disaster, and um, you know it's been in terms of the wages and it's and it's about it's not about cutting down costs. It's about value for money you have to get the best value for money when you're building a team if you have a machine that's very good but incredibly expensive and you can sell it and get two more that double your production output for the same cost you're not cost cutting you're making proper decisions and um and that's really as far as i can see that's what they're looking at they're going to want people who want to be there 100 percent and who are there for the long haul on the project I know you don't like the word project, but on what they're trying to accomplish here. I mean, at the end of the day, my point being, they do want people who are here for four or five years. Because one of the things United have have tried to do over and over and over and over again under the Glazers is cheat. They cheat on the rebuild. They cheat on actually building a proper team. And they try to skip it by buying players like Rafael Varane when it didn't make sense, by bringing in Cristiano Ronaldo when it didn't make sense, by bringing in... Casemiro when it isn't what they needed for the long run and they cannot cheat this rebuild essentially or this rehash of the whole squad they've got to clear it out and actually put in people with longevity players who have longevity at the club I, I think more than anything you you need players you can rely on to be here for a long time and you know how many years have we had strikers who are oh next year we're going to need another striker next year we're going to need a new striker it, it, it's endless and what it's it pretty impossible. What's that? And what does it remind you of? I made a joke about this, but it's it's legit, right? This reminds you of every guy's Christmas shopping. Leaves it to the last minute, right? Yeah. So yeah. Didn't plan properly. Ends up overpaying for shade they don't want, right? Yep. Stuff they don't need. And they repeat this process ad nauseum. And the people that prepare properly, that know exactly what they want, why they want it, who they want it for, and they're planning months ahead, they get what they want. Right? Yep. They don't pay what you pay. They 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 don't have the problems you have. 
They're not running yeah. the runs. You know, what, what did they make in the last day? They went to four or five signings last uh, this summer. Yeah. You know, they're not doing this stuff. And this is, this is the, you know, Ferguson said this once, you know, you can always tell the football clubs that are really pretty run. They're the ones that are trying to do all that business in the last day of the window because there is no foresight. And so inevitably yeah. you find yourself in this situation. So maybe we need a female director of football. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because <laughs> why women don't do this, right? No, no, no. We, we <laughs> it's not a bad idea. I mean, look, the, the, for Chelsea, they had a, they had a Marina. I don't know how to pronounce her last name. Right? No, you, but she did, a, she, did a, she did a great job with them with buying, selling, doing the things that they needed doing, you know? <laughs> If you need a straight on a center back, you get a Louis Vuitton purse. <laughs> I didn't say that. No, 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 no. Just joking. Um, some of the other potential departures, Rafael Varane, what do you think of that? I think that it's going to depend on the manager, which is why it's open-ended at the moment, the way that it's been stated out there that he's not committed. This is a complicated situation. I think I said a while back, and this gets into a really complicated area when it comes to the squad, and which is why I think they're more trying to not make too many long-term decisions today. You can't go to Rafael Varane and say, we might have a different manager next year who might want to play you more. So stick around and sign a new contract. You can't do have that conversation. Um, if he's willing to accept lower wages and stay, it would be helpful in that you don't know how many center backs you're going to have to buy next year, which is why they did the plus one option on, on Victor Lindelof. Because you have Lissandra Martinez, who's had two foot surgeries, Harry Maguire, who is always often unquestionable, but probably in the long term, not up to the level that you need. And you have Rafael Varane, who's out of contract and can sign with anybody else in six months. Having to buy three or four center backs this summer could be problematic. It's going to be a problem for any sort of rebuild, any sort of squad building in general. You can't have so much overhaul in one summer. It can cause complete instability in the, in the team itself. But it's uh, it's it's a really complicated situation, I think, in that, in that respect. He's not happy with his role in the team. That's what's been the case for some time now. And, um, you know, and that's fair enough. He, he feels he could go somewhere where he would be the first choice and, and that he's keeping his options open for that. He doesn't want to go to Saudi. I think he wants to stay in Europe and – and contribute in Europe. He maybe wants to go back to, to, to France where he's from. I think to uh, he's mentioned that before might be the next sort of final step in his career, but I, it's a, it's a tricky situation. I think it's okay. If United move on from him, um, I think it's okay. I think it's okay. If he accepts lower wages and stays for a couple of years, if he's not, ne- if it's okay, that he's not going to be necessarily always the first choice center back. Um it's kind of going to be up to him, but it's a tricky one because it, it's with a lot of players like this who are in that kind of middle ground. It's it's going to come down to stuff with the manager and long term plans and what their role will be and all of that as it gets closer to to summer. But that is a really tricky thing to to talk about right now because it's not like anything's been one hundred percent decided. Um, but as we all kind of know, there's a sincere possibility that Ten Hag isn't the manager next year. And how does that affect things? You know, I thought it was interesting when Tin Hogg first came into United. He, um, you know, kept Harry Maguire's captain, which was essentially saying that my starting to uh, set the back pattern was Maguire. 
and Martinez. Yeah. And then, of course, Maguire gets dropped after the Brantford game. Brighton game, Brentford, um, Brentford game. And um, Varane takes his place. But first time, first season, Varane was at United. He missed half the Premier League games because of injury. Yeah. I think the second one, it was the same. Yeah. And I don't see that getting any better as he gets older. I think that Ten Hag has always had reservations about Varane in some sense. Um, because once you name Maguire your captain, you know that you 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 plan on starting your captain. Maguire played his way out of the team rather than Varane playing his way in. Um, yep. And but I think that Galatasaray game where United conceded three, I thought he was really poor in that game. He comes on against FC Copenhagen. And Johnny Evans goes off, um, and then United concede four. And I'm not saying it's his fault. Um, but I look at him and going, good defender um, when he's fit, but he's not fit enough. And yeah. um, I actually remember his first game was away to Wolves. And I remember at the end of that game, the look on his face with the because of the intensity and the pace of the Premier League. Yeah. I think the time to sign Varane was when he, before he went to Real Madrid. Not as a 29-year-old with an injury record leaving Madrid on massive wages. So for me, I think, one, if Varane doesn't like his place where he's at right now, I don't see that improving next season. Yeah. I think if you need to go out and sign centre-backs next season, it has to be the start every week. So why would you keep a guy on massive wages on the bench that isn't happening? You know, these are the types of decisions they need to move on from and say, okay, you know what, it's okay, you you can leave and have more foresight into having a long-term replacement that can start every week. Look at how much, I don't think this helps Onana either, about how much you needed to rotate in their back line. It's far too often. I think they picked the same back four twice this whole season. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's something that absolutely has to improve going forward. They have to have consistency in the back four. Um, and mo the most important part of the back four, we have to have consistency is in the back two. Um, and uh, I don't mind Lindelof getting the contract extension as a backup centre-back, but certainly not yeah. as a centre-back. Yeah, and, and my understanding of the plan, at least uh, as I gather uh, regarding the centre-backs, with the triggering of Lindelof, I believe that the what they want us and expect is that Varan will leave. And I don't think there's any disagreement with that. Like I said, I could see it him staying on a backup and things like that, but I'm not sure that's what he wants anyway, because that's essentially his complaint as of now. But I don't believe that they're going to guarantee him, you know, oh yeah, you're going to be the first choice center back and all of that. Um, you know, it, it's it, they didn't take his option. They obviously want to allow him to go. Um what I believe they would like to do is, is allow Rafa Varane to leave. Uh, gives them the ability to assess Lissandra Martinez over the rest of the season. They have Victor Lindelof. They have Harry Maguire, who is a professional, who has maintained a, a positive mentality if he's going to be not the first-choice centre-back next year. He's someone who has shown a willingness to compete for it without you know downing tools or throwing a strop or anything like that. And I think that's commendable from him. Um, and, uh, you know, from my day, I understand right now, I would expect the plan is to let Veron go and pursue 
a first choice center back, some of the names like Antonio Silva, um, you know, obviously talked about Tolibo at Nice and, and other names that have, have come up. And then over the next two summers or over the next couple of windows, get another center back in as well. Um, so you have three or four really good center backs in the, in the club. But I would say I very strongly expect that Rafael Brand will leave and they will buy uh, a fairly significant new center back for his position. Do you see any other in January, probably not. I mean, yeah. yeah, if an offer comes in, but that continues to be the problem, isn't it? Um, seven million from Fenerbahce is not real. I don't think so. I don't think that they've made any offer on that. There's some good reporters from from Turkey. Uh, I think United, if someone offered them seven million for Martial, he'd be out quicker than that. I would take him before the ayahuasca wears off. Are you kidding me? Yeah, a fee? I don't know. I don't know. I don't think you know I could get a fee for him. You know, uh, one of the positives I think, in some respect, potentially, is a you know the Saudi league voted to increase the number of foreign players that they're bringing in. The problem is you're seeing players come back who didn't really enjoy their experiences for one reason or another. I don't know. Maybe my, you know the money wasn't enough for some of the trade off yeah, for being you know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, <laughs> no one's buying you back into mm-hmm. Europe, that's for sure. And so I don't know. I don't know if that is a good if that is a possibility or not because Casemiro there's big interest in him from from the Saudi from Saudi as well. I think he'd be more open to it. Uh Martial, I don't know. I don't really know in that respect, but I think that's really the only potential route for him out. You know, the difference between someone like Martial and someone like Fred, for example, who went to Turkey is, you know, Fred is a free agent. And as I understand it, he didn't care too much about the money on the wages that he was going to get. Um, he also got a nice payoff. Well, the, you on, well no, he wasn't a free agent. He had the plus one. Right. Excuse me. He had the plus one, but he wasn't on big wages. Martial's on 250000 uh, a year. Um, I, His contract's up at the end of the season, too. Yeah, so. just let it go. I mean, that's kind of how I see it. I don't see that they could get any money for him. I think it's going to be a wash. They're either going to have to pay those wages out or not, you know. And so it's like he's he's here or he's not. I think makes little difference. I think he'll just be gone in summer. Here's my concern, James. Right, is that um, one United squad needed strengthening, um, regardless of any outgoings yeah. in January. Yeah. So they got rid of some friends players, which is fine. That doesn't tell me that the squad is stronger at the end of January than what it was at the beginning. So yeah. you know, we, we're being told that FFP. Uh, is an impediment for recruitment. Um, some rumors suggesting that it'll be an offer to some different strikers. Um, I believe Kareem Benzema is out of contract. Um, Chupa Moutin was someone that's been offered to United. Um, what do you see United doing in terms of forwards in January? Honestly, not much. I mean, this is a tricky situation. You know, there was offer, there was some contact with, with Werner, but they never really followed that up. It has to be alone. I mean, I, I do not think they will sign a single permanent player in January. Listen to this question. What's that? Listen to this stat. And um, Eric Ten Hag has sent more loan players than what United have sent on loan in the last 25 years. Yeah, I believe that. So when you look at how, how often he's being asked to help 
depend on the long market. When you depend on the long market, you're not talking about top players. You're talking about players that yeah. are on the fringes that are not good enough that other clubs don't want. Um, you know, the Ori and the Gallo stuff, you know, for, uh, Solskjaer had to lean on contacts to make that happen. You look at all these, you know, la- emergency loans. How many of them ever worked out? Yeah. Get Henrik Larson, maybe. Ferguson yeah. did. Um, but I can't remember the last time you got an emergency loan that, you know, actually went, okay, this guy's top class, this guy's, I mean, a goal did all right, I suppose. But, did uh, all right for the time being, for, for, for a short time that it was, uh, that it was, that it was. Yeah, there. but you feel that you still need another striker. Yeah, you do. Um, you do. I, I mean, it's a problem. The goal scoring is an issue and I don't see it resolving that much. It, this is tricky. I mean, I would love to be positive about the whole thing, but the reality is I think that we all have to face is that the season's a bit of a waste at this point in time. I mean, I, I don't think it has to be a total waste. I, I'm not saying that it should necessarily be, but you can understand the problem that is encountered in all of this. Like we talked about at the end of last summer, which was the truth as it came out in the end, here we are six months later, that the way that they were making financial decisions, the Glazers was essentially, Hey, we're getting a minority investor coming in and we're cleaning the books up and we're cutting the spending down to absolutely nothing. Uh, and we're going to free up as much money as possible. And I think that that it continues to be the plan for January uh, up until the summer. And, and it's okay because it's, it is, really challenging i would not like to see them make any sort of permanent signing that hinders things later we've done that too many times as well i mean you look at the options there amrabat has not been a success it's a good thing they didn't buy him permanently in the end um they sent regulon back i think to free up a loan spot is probably part of it um so I just don't see much. I mean, maybe a, a lone striker comes in or somebody that they could take a punt on that maybe they look at for a veteran presence that they can sign permanently next year. I think that would be part of it is they'd like, if they get a loan in, they'd like to get somebody that could come into the window for a cheap cover signing for permanent. Um, ideally, you know, something like that. So I honestly don't know. Yeah. I don't. I don't know if anything happens this 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 month in terms of in. I really don't. I think um, over the Christmas period, which was United towards December since 1930, I believe, um, mm-hmm. the goal scoring record is just abysmal. It's indefensible. Mm-hmm. Um, and inevitably, this brings up conversations about Anthony. And mm-hmm. I don't like turning on United players and... For anyone that listens to my podcast will know for a significant part of last season, I defended Anthony and felt there was a player that he would improve, that his decision-making would improve. Um, I found myself becoming really, really angry at his performances over the last few weeks. And I was looking back at some of United's decent wins. They scored four or three away to Copenhagen. He wasn't playing. They scored three away to Everton. He wasn't playing. I, I believe the you know, they would never have come back against Aston Villa if he was playing. Chance. And I think that United you know, just look a much better team without him. I was doing a podcast over Christmas with Franz Hoke, and um, 
Franz actually hosted that podcast on Zoom, so don't blame me. But um, I tried to press record as a uh, not as a host, as a guest, and he has to actually give permission. He gives permission about halfway through the podcast, so I lost a bunch of it. But we we're talking about Anthony anyway, and uh, I was asking him about you know why he feels he's failed, and he goes, "Honestly, I feel that if Eric." was in a second season at United, he wouldn't have made that signing. Because I think one of the things that is impossible to anticipate before you go to United is the type of scrutiny and pressure you face off the pitch, mm. on the pitch. It's like He would have known this in the second season, and there were certainly question marks about Anthony and how certain things affect him off the pitch. Don't affect yeah. everyone the same. Certain players can handle different things, different, you know, we're all built differently. And he goes, um, if you haven't done it by your second season at a big club, it almost never happens. And that's usually the cutoff where they say, okay, no more. And he goes, I would be very surprised at this point if Anthony ever becomes a Manchester United player. Um, I, like I said, I don't like picking on United players, but he infuriates me, James. Yeah, he does. I, I don't know that there's been a player I, I get so angry watching, essentially, because I think so often there's many moments in games where you could see exactly what he could do, that he just won't. He just won't do it. And and, and he can. I don't think he can. I, I, I just have to come to that conclusion that I just don't think he can. And it's not like even mistakes. It's just... I've never. It's it's hard to see that one dimensional of a, of a player in so many moments where where there could be a difference being made, and um, yeah, it, it's an issue, and I don't think it's going to work out. I, I think there's practically no chance at this point that it uh, it works out for the long haul. Oh, the the brilliant Swedish Rumble done a fantastic um, long form tweet on how many clubs uh, at the top level play with inverted wingers, and a lot do. The problem is, and there's a clip on my tweet, on my Twitter feed with Granacho that shows he's willing to use both feet. So there's a level of unpredictability there. Granacho's willing to, you know, shoot with his left foot, he scores goals with his left foot. Uh, he's willing to do score goals with his right foot. He put the ball across with his right foot. Um, you know, he put the ball in the box. He shoots. He says scores a wide variety of goals. Even the people that were trying to defend Anthony by showing his clips in Holland the previous year were showing me the same goal, the same thing every single time. And I'm going, looking at what we know now, United Scouts should have noticed. This guy does the same thing every single time. Cuts in bottom corner, cuts in top corner, you know. Yeah. And when you are playing as an inverted winger, there's very little space when you pick up the ball because it's a high compact area, right? You've got centre backs, you've got inverted full backs there. You have to be really quick and he slows the counter attack down because the ball comes down the right hand side. He has to stop, pull the ball back, and then do a bunch of shimmies and do a bunch of, you know, um, you know, feints and, and and step overs, and you know that he's either going to cut inside and shoot or cross, but you know he's not going right. Yeah. There's a brilliant clip of Alfonso Davies just standing there watching him going, "Okay, let me know when you're going to go across me, you know, onto my right hand side because I know that's when you're going." He tries it, and he just takes it off and going. It's not a surprise to me that after his first three games, he's not scoring goals because it looks like to me players have worked him out. Um, 
this is a serious, serious problem for Ten Hag when you have a mm-hmm. forward that scored that, that now Luton Town are scoring more goals. And I honestly believe, and I've been a big defender of Ten Hag in this show, um, that if United weren't in the chaos they were in, he might have struggled to survive December. Yeah, um, fortunately, I'll say we, we won't see Anthony today. By the time this podcast is out, it won't be a spoiler, so it's okay. Uh, from uh, spoiling the lineup early or anything like that, but yeah, we see in the front three versus Villa again today, which I think is encouraging because because uh, that was good. Garnacho, Rashford, Hoyland, hopefully Garnacho on the right again. Hopefully we see some. We see a, a nice game today. It's it's a uh, it is Rashford on the left is, They have this ability to lure I know. of their play to the opposition, and this worries me. I know, I know. But let's see, because this was good. This was good against, you know, yeah. they really showed up, you know. Let's hope. Uh, let's hope. Let's but as to your point on, on Ten Hag, yeah, I, I would agree with that. And one of the things I mentioned a long time ago that we've talked about, and I think sort of a final point on this, because this is where the question lies in the future, is aside from results, one of the biggest things that Ten Hag is going to have to accept is, is a change in his uh, role, mm-hmm. is a change in his powers at United. This has now come out. From a couple of journalists, I think I said this some months ago that as far as I was hearing from the Ineos side, there were concerns about this that he would not accept a change in his uh, role. Some of it's in his contract, and that's a problem. That's a problem for him. It's a problem for everybody, but it's a problem for him because you know, yes, he has a veto in his contract. He's really had more influence than that, and I know that people will look at a veto and say it's not a big power, but it kind of is. Uh, veto powers can be significant. You know, Deserby over the weekend said about uh, Yao, Yao Pedro, right? He scored a couple mm-hmm. goals for them. He said he didn't even know who he was. Now, the problem when you have a manager who has a veto is if he doesn't know the player, he's not going to sign him. He's going to veto it and he's going to pick someone that he's familiar with. Well, he should have. You know, he should, you know, he, he could have. Maybe. Yeah, I know. No, no, no. He but, you know, it's a. You're always going to make mistakes in signing, right? You're always going to make mistakes in signing, but it still shouldn't be necessarily down to the manager. And you can find a lot of stories left and right. And and I'm not putting the full blame on Ten Hag. He asked for a lot of these powers probably because of what he'd seen and experienced uh, about United that's known about United's recruitment and and these kind of things. Let me ask you a quick question on that. Yeah. Because reading the piece that Laurie Whitwell did made me question whether – Mason Mount was really someone that Eric Ten Hag really wanted. Because Ten Hag said something that I thought was a bit obscure. He said, oh yeah, he played against Ajax for Vitesse years ago, but that wasn't in my thinking. And actually, if you look at what Laurie was saying in that piece, it was John Murda trying to sell the merits of Mason Mount to Ten Hag. And um, you know, Murda was obviously responsible for Casemiro. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. Hoyland was also someone that Murda had scouted quite a bit and done, done his research on. So I'm going, how much is Mason Mount and Eric Ten Hag signing? Because Mason Mount was dropped, remember? Yeah, well, to, to, to be fair, I believe that Mason Mount is someone that the club really liked. I, I've, I've maintained that for a long time, that I think it's someone the club really liked as a player. That being said... I know for a fact that Eric Ten Hag flew himself to London to meet with Mason Mount before summer to meet with him, to talk with him um, prior to the Chelsea game, 
to sort that deal out and, and get it lined up. So I know he gave a very full blessing. I know that for a 100% fact, by the way. I know he gave a 100% blessing on it. I, I wouldn't blame him for that. It's okay. It's fine. Um, I don't have 100 total blame for Ten Hag on, on a lot of the things. I think Anthony is one that is so bad that um, <laughs> it, it's so bad that you kind of can't argue it. But the point is still, regardless of who is at fault, uh, the setup isn't working. And Ineos have come in and their perspective has been from the start that these agreements that are in place are going to have to change. This setup isn't working. This isn't how it's going to be done here. And 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 I've, I've said for some time that I think that Ten Hag is going to have to accept it or it's going to be a reason he loses his job at United. Um, they will replace him. They will not accept this things to continue. And here's part of the problem. If you want to bring in people like Ashworth, Paul Mitchell, uh, they're not going to sit there and say, oh, yeah, we're going to recruit. We're going to do all this work. We're going to find the best players for the team. And the manager just says no. No, then I just work within a recruit system, and absolutely, and um, the system yeah. is built around Ten Hag. Ten Hag has to work around the system, yep. and I completely yep. agree with that. All right, we have uh, waking up by the time people download this podcast, we will already know the score of this. So, uh, what's your predictions for Wigan? I I think we'll win. I mean, I think we'll win. I think with the front three that's that's out there, I think I think we'll win. I think it'll be. A, I think we'll score a couple goals today. I think um, it was smart to make. Onana stay and not give by and dear to me. No, if, I don't think if I'm by and dear, if I'm United and I'm saying I'm not going to play you against Wigan 18th in the in League One, but we're going to throw you in the Premier League. I don't understand the wisdom of that. To me, no, by and dear no. was Fenerbahce's number one goalkeeper, the Turkish national team goalkeeper. If you're not going to play him against Wigan, when are you going to play him? Yeah, I, I disagree up, with it for sure. If Onana drops a clanger and you had to go to the cup. <laughs> Oh my God! The the so you know, convincing Onana to stay and then he drops drops one in that. I'm I'm telling you like that. That's yeah. a yeah. I I disagree with it. I don't know what the point of buying a player is if you're not going to use him for Wigan. I mean, come on. It makes me wonder was buying the air. Ten Hag signing. Uh, honestly, who knows at this point? He I, honestly, someone else. He, he asked to one. It wasn't buying the air. It was someone else. I forget. Um, there was another name, but either way, at the end of the day, they approved him. They brought him in. You've got to put some. I mean, they were willing to play Dubrovka last year. You know, uh, it didn't go well, mind you, the, the game that he played. But if you're going to buy this young player, you know, it was Suzuki. It was the other name that uh, was up for goalkeeper. Zion Suzuki was the other name that I mentioned over summer. But I think, uh, I think, I think they should have played him. Honestly, I think they should have played him. I, I really do. I, I think you should. If if you're him at that point, you're looking at and saying, "Why am I here? If I can't get this game against Wigan when when you're making a player extend where he's going to play like back to back days, why am I here? Uh, it's very questionable for me." Yeah, I completely agree with that. All right, we'll go ahead and leave it there. Um, folks, we'll be back with you uh, every Monday. Um, so thanks to all of you for downloading the podcast through 2023. Uh, we look forward to having a wonderful 2024 with all of you. And um, I'm sure this podcast will evolve as we go along. Um, so thanks to each and every one of you for taking the time to support us. And um, let's hope you nearly get the win. So take it easy, mate. Cheers, Tim. Yes, thanks. Thanks, thanks everybody. Bye. See you later.